Welcome to a podcast for all. I'm Shane Obershaw. And I'm Jeff Winslow. Oh, yes. Symphony version of Ecstasy of Gold. Man, this sounds really good. It sounds so full. Well, we're 14 episodes into the podcast, Jeff. I think this, I think we should use the S&M version instead of the uh, original from now on. Yeah, I definitely second that. This version, much better. Do you remember where you were when you heard S&M 1? Uh, I don't remember exactly where I was, but I do remember the first song that I ever heard from S&M 1. And that was No Leaf Clover. Do you remember the video? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a live video. Just a live take of the show. Yep. Berkeley. Yeah, that was that's a great song. Um, still to this day, it's actually one of my favorite songs to play live. Cool thing about back in the 90s, we're just kind of getting into the internet, that, uh, that World Wide Web machine. Oh, like that AOL dial-up? The good old dial-up modem. We knew something was happening with Metallica and a symphony via the fan club and... I don't know, posters at, you know, in the window of Sam Goody at your record store. Yep, or uh, Guitar Center, or probably, I guess at that time, it would have been Mars Music. I forgot about Mars, great store. Oh, Mars always had some cool stuff. So we knew something was going on, but until you saw that video on MTV, back when MTV actually played videos. Oh yeah, for those of you listening that are too young to remember, MTV used to play these things called music videos. It stood for music television. <laughs> Before uh, Road Rules and uh, Real World. Yeah, and Teen Mom and all that took over. And then you see the video and you are mind blown that the symphony of SFO and Metallica collide to make one hell of a live album. And at the time, VHS and then DVD that I still watch on a regular basis. Yeah, I still listen to the CD. It's actually probably one of the the few Metallica albums that I still listen to regularly. And it's not because I don't like listening to Metallica, but being in a Metallica tribute band, it's you know, you don't really gravitate towards the greatest hits anymore. So you look for the things that you know you wouldn't listen to as often. And for me, S and M is that thing that gets played quite a bit. You got one song to pick off S and M one. What would that be? There's a lot of great things that they did on SNM one. Maybe I'm partial to it. I want to say Outlaw Torn because that was, you know, for those of you that don't know, that was in my top five island songs if I ever got stranded. True. But honestly, it would actually have to be Clover just because of the significance and the fact that it was the first song that I heard off that record. And to me, it's just the most... uh symbolic as far as when i think of snm i always think of that song very significant i hear you how about you what song would you pick uh we can't seem to get off this outlaw torn kick for (laughs) many episodes and uh segments in the show outlaw is absolutely my go-to on snm one we've talked about it every episode we all agree it's a great song and you know i think you know, looking at the set list from SM2, it looks like they played that song too. And from what I read, uh, it sounds like they actually used uh, Michael Kamen's original kind of composition for that. That's correct. I can't wait to get into those details. I love playing it live, I love listening to it, and I'm so happy that it stuck around for SM2. 
So speaking of SNM two, um, they added a few different songs uh, than what they had in SNM one. Uh, you got to see the show, so you know what these songs are. I'm just looking at the set list. Uh, what were some of the some of the songs that stood out that they changed? You know, as I headed out to San Francisco that weekend, as a diehard Metallica fan and Metallica tribute band, half-assed musician, I thought if they repeat SNM one. I could die happy, but knowing Metallica, it's not going to happen. They always got to throw some kind of surprise. Yeah. Are they going to open with Cthulhu? Probably. Are they going to close with Sandman? Probably. We know those kind of things are kind of going to fall in place, and we can expect that. Before it even started, seeing the in-the-round production and knowing that 90 to 100 people are going to be on a rotating stage in the round in the Chase Center. By the way, this is the first show ever at the Chase Center, home of the Golden State Warriors. Oh, yeah, that's right. So a huge buzz in the city. Chase Center opening, grand opening, first concert, Metallica. Leave SMM. it to Metallica to always play a new new venue. They're like, they have a history with being one of the first bands to play these huge new venues. I think that's in their rider now. Must be new. Yeah, must be new. First band to play here. I think so. We should get that in ours. Yeah, that wouldn't be a bad thing to add. We'll see how many venues take us. Probably get one gig a decade. Eh, maybe every five years. <laughs> well, at the rate we're going with COVID in 2020, that's about the rate we're going anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, to answer your question, the ones that stood out that were just phenomenal, they were all phenomenal, but the ones that stood out that I think everyone's going to dig when you get it on your DVD or Blu-ray or digital download or CD, which, by the way, comes out August 28th. Your Apple Music or Spotify. You got it. I have to go with the day that never comes. Oh, yeah, that would be that'd be cool to see that one. Halo on fire. Unforgiven three. That one. Oh, man, I can't believe they pulled that one out. All within my hands. We've heard that before in some of their acoustic things, like kind of those benefit shows and the all within my hands the foundation shows or whatever it was. Correct. Yep. And to round out the evening, which was the highlight for me, it's amazing that a bass solo was the highlight of the show for me. Anesthesia, Pulling Teeth, performed by Mr. Scott Pingle. Wow, isn't that something? I mean, just to think, they're going to pull something out from Kill 'em All on SNM. That seems like the most appropriate thing. It's the most. It's definitely the most melodic piece off of uh, Kill 'em All. I think everyone agrees on that. It's weird to think about that. No Kill 'em All songs back in 99 at Berkeley. No, no. I mean, why would you? I mean, what song other than Pulling Teeth could you see them playing off of Kill 'em All? Seek and Destroy. True. That's for me, that would probably be the only one. Uh, if I could choose one, I would want Jump in the Fire. <laughs> you just want that for our trivia theme music. Oh, to have an SM version of Jump in the Fire for that? Oh, that'd be killer. Those string players will be trucking. What do you mean, Dyer's Eve is too fast? I don't want to hear it. Picture no remorse with a symphony. Picture anything off of Kill 'em All with a symphony, with the exception of pulling teeth. I'm starting to hear a cello though. No remorse, baby. <laughs> now I sound like Jack Black with my little noises here. 
Well, when we get S&M 3 in uh, 2039, maybe we'll get no remorse. Yeah, can we just get kill them all in its entirety when they're too old to play it? You could call it S&M with uh, D-Han 2039. Here we go. At that age, there's too many too many lines to sing. What were your thoughts when I think all our phones blew up that morning? Lars, James, um, people from the Golden State Warriors, the Chase Center, and I believe Michael Tilson Thomas were holding a press conference outside the Chase Center announcing S&M too. I was super excited for it. My first thought was, I got to figure out a way to get to this show, but I know realistically it's going to be impossible just because... You know, I have a busy schedule, I have a family and all that. So I knew it was going to be tough, but I was super excited. I thought it was a smart move on their part. It seems fitting that it's, you know, 20 years later, you know, it's an it's the anniversary of it. I mean, definitely something that Metallica would do for sure. And Michael Tilson Thomas picks a conductor of the San Francisco Symphony who went to the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, he went to a little school called Harvard, by the way. I didn't get selected to go there. Yeah, I sent in my application, but they said I was too smart. So too smart. So why? Why? Yeah, they said crowd they said, up the classroom. They said why bother? You you'd be better off going to hang out with Elon Musk. Um, this individual graduated uh, cum laude from Harvard. Keep in mind, I graduated high school, not cum laude, but come lucky. Yeah, me too. He's also uh, directed and conducted in Canada, Paris, Florida, Italy, San Francisco, other various places in the United States, and I'm sure I'm missing another 22 that we don't know about. I also read somewhere that his grandmother was the manager for Ella Fitzgerald, if any of y'all have ever heard of her. What? She, uh... She did a little thing called start music. <laughs> yeah, the, basically invented the word music. And then I think his father worked for Warner Brothers as well. Wow, I didn't know that. So yeah, just a couple connections in the music industry. A couple other projects uh, include the names of Cheap Trick, Ben Folds 5, and a gentleman by the name of Seal. Seal, that guy that sings Kiss from a Rose? That was a big song when I was in high school. Dude, that was uh, Batman Forever. That was for that soundtrack? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that song might have been, I think it was on an album, but I do remember it was in that movie because the music video, I want to say, has to do with Batman Forever. That's the one with Val Kilmer, I believe. That rings a bell. All I remember in high school is if you put on any Seal song, especially Kiss from a Rose, you were guaranteed to make out with your girl that night. And in high school, that's what mattered. That's the sign of making it. A little bit of seal, backseat of the car, a little fogging up of the windows. Boy, listen to you. Fogging up the windows. You must live in Minnesota. <laughs> the great white north, eh? I'm like up by Canada. I'm like I'm basically a trailer park boy at this point. Well, we're not going to Canada. We're, we're a little bit up north. We're going to go to Chicago, Illinois now and talk to the maestro, one and only conductor, of our favorite S&M 2. Are you ready, Jeff? I'm ready. Are you ready, Shane? Here we go. From Chicago, Illinois, soon to be San Francisco, Mr. Maestro Edwin Outwater. How you doing, Edwin? I'm good. How are you guys? We're doing great, man. We are excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to 
two Metallica geeks about our favorite uh, live Metallica experience. That's your favorite live Metallica experience. I would say it uh, right now. It tops everything. We are so excited about SNM two coming out. I was there for both nights, and wow, what an what an experience! Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I'm, I'm glad that you guys who are like deep Metallica fans uh, feel the same way, and that you were there. That's that's really cool. It was fun watching you jump up and down on your riser as Cthulhu kicked in. I could I yes. could just sense the excitement with you. Like, is this really happening? <laughs> it's it's pretty amazing. You know, we worked on it for so many months, getting it together, and you know, for me, a deep dive into all that stuff, and also, you know, it's a rock concert, so you got to put on the show in a good way, in that way, and to be a rock and roll conductor was really fun. Uh, you know, so I got to jump around and do all this kind of stuff that I maybe wouldn't always do. Yeah, yeah, I got to be a little bit more free flowing with it and just kind of rock out. What songs or history about Metallica were you aware of, or did you know about before this opportunity, Edwin? Man, I mean, I did listen to Metallica. I remember particularly, I mean, I'm a pretty eclectic listener. And sure. I, I was kind of an L.A. like punk new wave kid, you know, in the 80s. That was like where I kind of got into it. Though it started with like Van Halen and Led Zeppelin. My dad actually worked for nice. Warner, Warner Brothers Records. Um, so I was kind of an iPod, you know, an iTunes kid before um, everyone. I got a lot of free music. Just through my, through my you had dad. the insight on all the new stuff coming out. Yeah, and I could, just didn't have to buy it. So I would uh, ask my dad to bring home, like, hey, I'd like to hear Led Zeppelin. And he'd bring home all the LPs, you know. Oh, that's so cool. And so it was very, um, I was very lucky because I could just kind of explore freely. Uh, and, um, and that kind of led me into all sorts of different kinds of music. But uh, Metallica, you know, in the 90s for sure. Um, Definitely Master of Puppets, you know, I and 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 probably Justice for All were the ones that I listened to the most um, at that time. And I was kind of like metal was is was kind of a I would get waves of wanting to listen to heavier stuff. Sure. You know, and it would usually be in January. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Even in California, I was like or on road trips, um, you know, so I, I definitely knew it. But I and I lo- I did like it. I, I listened to it a lot, but I wasn't you know, an obsessive fan, uh, in the way, but now I am, I, you know, once I, once I got into this project, I of course listened to everything. So. Absolutely. So yeah. you go from listening to master puppets and injustice for all to going to Harvard and graduating cum laude. Keep in mind, I graduated high school. Come lucky. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was fun. I, I wanted to go to the East Coast, and I did lots of music there. You know, I was in an, all this kind of Ivy League stuff. I ran an acapella group. We actually had a heavy metal medley, which is you know now kind of makes me cringe. Interesting. But, uh, yeah. What did that? Uh... <laughs> I think it had like Back in Black. It had Black Dog in it. Like wow. Yeah, you know, it was kind of it was it was it was okay. I mean, some That's of those awesome. arrangers have gone on to do some really amazing stuff. But it's it's just the whole Ivy League thing. How can you not be in a a singing group. I don't Absolutely. know if there are any, I can't think of any like really good rock bands, you know, that I knew from my classmates. It's kind of too bad. So you were the one that kind of had a little bit more of the rock influence coming into it. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to a lot of concerts, you know, as a, as a kid again, cause of my dad. So I, even as like a 10 year old, uh, he, I said, Hey, I want to go to a rock concert. And he said, well, what do you want to see? And I, I, I don't know. And he's like, how about like, do you want to see like explosions and snakes? 
And <laughs> I was like, Dra- yeah. dragons jumping out of the PA. Yes, I would very much like to see that. So he took me to Alice Cooper uh, for oh, my cool. very first concert, like in the eighties at the Greek theater. That's quite yeah. the stage show too, to see for your first show. It was a good choice. It got me into it. Yeah. It was, it did have snakes and <laughs> blood and explosions and everything. Yeah. Fire and all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. Very, very cool. When did you get the call for this project? Did uh, Michael Tilson break the news to you, or how did that go down? I think they did. He and the the symphony staff. I mean, I have a long relationship with SF Symphony, and right. often the more weird the project is, uh, the more often they'll have me do it. And uh, and and I was also pretty well known for working with like non classical artists with that orchestra. So um, it was in the spring, late mid spring, maybe March, February. Uh, before before the concert of I guess nineteen right so and once that project started it was a pretty it was a lot of work getting it together but I suppose you felt semi natural kind of going into that since you had worked with you know you know rock bands like Cheap Trick and whatnot yeah it was totally up my alley so I was like yes this is this is amazing you know to do this and and I kind of been through these kind of creation projects the Cheap Trick project was like my main. Um, first experience with it. It's, it's, you can still hear it. It's actually out. They recorded it. Unfortunately, not with me, but uh, I was at that point, I was not on the project and came back later, but it started at the Hollywood bowl and they played uh, Sergeant Peppers live. Uh, oh, cool. And Jeff em- Emmerich, you know, who passed away was there on the boards mixing it. Who was the Beatles engineer. Right. And then they wow. legendary. I know I got to know him really well. Oh, he, dude, that's so cool. He came from a classical background. Did you know that? Like he was really, you know, one of those white coat EMI, you know, uh, engineers. He was about 19, I think, and uh, was working on opera and classical stuff. And then they somehow pulled him into um, Revolver, you know. Wow, that's quite the transformation, especially at that time period, too. Yeah. And he walked into the studio and he said, John Lennon wanted to be hung from his ankles and spun around, you know, for... (laughs) And and recorded that way for tomorrow never knows. And then so right. Jeff, Jeff came up with the idea of a rotating speaker. Um, so he put an amp on a swivel. And oh, for like the, that. like the Leslie style. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, and then he might he recorded that live, and that was kind of the beginning of their their relationship. And man, you know, that was, is something yeah. else. And that was like the nineteen year old kid. So he had a long. It was pretty. I I talked to him for hours. He was innovative at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, but Cheap Trick got to get, they play, you know, they play the Beatles. They're obviously Beatles influenced and they did such, it almost reminded me of classical music because they didn't do a Beatlemania show. I mean, they really were still Cheap Trick. So they kind of put their own mark on it, but were also very kind of faithful to the source material. And, uh, that mix was really exciting. Just kind of more hard rock version of those songs, you know, with the same melodic, uh, and, you know, Beatles stuff. It was a really fantastic project oh absolutely so anytime a crazy off the wall project comes up they say oh let's call edwin he'll do it it's getting to be that way i really like it yeah very cool yeah. very cool edwin how do you pre- how do you prepare yourself in the symphony differently when is this type of show outside of your outside of your concert hall i mean we're in the round twenty thousand seat arena what has to be done you have to warn them <laughs> give them a heads up of what's to come this is what's going to happen yeah and you know you know about maybe you know some of not a little less than half of that orchestra had played snm1 there were a lot of new members but plenty had done it um and so they were familiar with the volume levels i mean symphonies 
generally even have union rules against how loud it can get just right. to protect their hearing because um, they're not wearing earplugs generally. I mean, now they're, you know, people are getting much better about ear production. So now orchestra members even have, it, it can get really loud on stage in a, in a Mahler symphony, you know? Oh it's, God. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I told them, Hey, we're going to be in a circle. We're going to rotate around, you know, once during the whole concert. I can uh, just picture their eyes getting big already. Yeah, we're going to be in the round and turning. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going to turn on the PA now. Um, we're not going to do it now. And like, in, in I think one, we rehearsed, I, you may know this, but before we went to the Chase Center, we rehearsed in the Cow Palace. Yeah, I read um, that. And uh, we did the first few rehearsals just all on headphones. So with no PA. And then I remember at the very end, you know, we said, okay, we're going to turn on the PA just so you can feel the vibrations and, and know what you're doing. And I think just preparation and warning, you know, then they're good sports and they're not taken by surprise and they know that they're being looked after and valued and, you know, cared about. I think that really helped. Absolutely. I, I've seen pictures of you at HQ. How, how far ahead was HQ before the Cow Palace rehearsals? Only a few days. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think... I think it was there was the HQ period, which was about four days, where I, you know, met. Well, I'd met Lars before, but I had met met the rest of the guys, and um, and it was just kind of talking through a lot of things, game plan. Greg, Greg, and I were kind of had been Fiddleman had been talking a lot, um, you know, getting the arrangements ready. Um, sure. And so we kind of kind of brainstormed. Then uh, the second day was really fun. Uh, I think Michael Tilson Thomas came in that day and taught Metallica how to play the Iron Foundry or, you know, the, the middle <laughs> stuff, which is interesting. Funniest, yeah. It's one of the funniest uh, kind of experiences. And then uh, we're going to get the Iron Foundry later. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine them teaching Metallica something like just how it's kind of, you know, cause you're there to do the Metallica concert, but then now the roles are going to switch here a little bit and we're going to, yeah. I'm sure that was probably a pretty cool experience to see. And that was their idea. I mean, they wanted to do that. And yeah. Meeting Metallica. So, it was, you know, that's what I love about the band is they're like, let's just do this, you know. They're super open. They're doing all sorts yeah. of different stuff. So, um, and then the really exciting in the HQ is when Scott Pingle came. Um, right. The bass player who played Anesthesia and essentially auditioned uh, for the band playing that just in HQ in front wow. of them which must have been a bit of pressure. Oh, I can't even imagine all four of them going, okay, show me what you got kid. Yeah. You know, (laughs) just watching kind of their jaws drop as he played. That was pretty, was pretty cool. And you know, they got very emotional about it, obviously, you know, and I just, I read that was the first time that Scott actually used a pedal board or, or a wah effect playing an upright. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. I mean, he just invented it. He, he kind of, there was a call, you know, in the spring when the project started and a wish for Metallica, from Metallica and MTT to feature uh, SF Symphony musicians in a, mm-hmm. in a role like that. And uh, so Scott heard about it and he was on me like in the, like half a second. He's like, <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, okay. I got this idea and I'm, you know, I'm going to do this and this and this and here's, and he knew right away what he needed to do. Yeah. It took him months, you know, to put it together and the amount of, you know, it, it is, it, it's clear what the kind of care and love that he put into that. And it's amazing. It, and the amount of hours is not to be underestimated, but that's a very classical music thing. 
even that audition, I mean, to get in the San Francisco Symphony, mm-hmm. it's it's like getting on a major league sports team. You you have to play, um, or maybe even more precisely, like a gymnastics routine. You have five minutes to do a flawless, you know, play all the hardest orchestra parts flawlessly behind a screen. They can't even see you. Um, I don't know wow. if you knew that. Yeah, because they're trying. It's been a thing with orchestras kind of against uh, starting the eighties against like discrimination or, you know, to keep, keep it as fair as possible. They literally play sure. behind the screen. They just want to hear the music. Hear what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Very fair. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of pressure is, you know, something Scott would have been used to just getting into the orchestra. But so that, that came in handy playing for, for Metallica, I would assume. How many days at HQ before the Cow Palace? I think like three or four. Okay. Yeah. All and, four band uh, members there. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that was important. I mean, getting hanging, you know, especially for me, trust goes all sorts of ways, like letting, you know, they needed, I think it was good that they got to know me before we got into this big public thing with all these, with all these. Oh, uh, sure. That's when your relationship pretty much started. So I'm glad we had that time and it was, it was pretty relaxed, kind of more rock and roll time. Not, not, you know, the, the, the timer wasn't ticking and, mm-hmm. you know, we got to chat and, spend time together and yeah just break the ice and get to know yeah. each other and whatnot yeah because we're all you know going out into kind of uncharted territory going to outer space for a couple yeah. weeks yeah <laughs> did you walk in and go boy this is a pretty cool clubhouse i did i i had seen the you know the documentary years ago i purposely didn't rewatch it before uh snm2 some kind of monster just because i didn't <laughs> i didn't want to like you know but i would have now that i re- i rewatched it after and I, you know, now I, oh, that's an HQ. You know, that's the kitchen. That's like, all. Oh, I was standing there. right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've had a bag of chips right here at this table. Yeah. Very cool. I like merch, you know, it's really fun. So they, at the time, I don't think it's there anymore, but a lot of, they had some merch in the HQ, like that they, and so I got to walk in to like, see all the different stuff that they had, t-shirts and hats and baby clothes and things like that. <laughs> it was, it was pretty fun. The mighty Metallica merchandise machine. Yeah, you know classical music has no merch. So it's, <laughs> we got to get you some. I know. There's one classical composer I know who's, who's who's fantastic. Who's kind of rock and roll anyway, but she always makes merch for any new piece she writes. You know, which I think is fantastic. Well, hopefully, if you guys decide to bring in merch for the orchestra, your t-shirts won't be you know eighty dollars a t-shirt like yeah, a lot of them are. <laughs> <laughs> S and M leather coat, three fifty. Here we go. Yes, yeah. yes. Costs us fifty bucks to make, three hundred and fifty dollars. Man, oh man, merch. Yes. When, when we get to the show, Edwin, what did you have uh, for your own mix in your ears? I noticed your control panel by your riser. Were you yeah. always changing what you needed, or pretty much the same tried, mix throughout the show? I tried not to, uh, but I did work on it quite a bit. And uh, over the rehearsal period, I was just. Um, I, I, I wanted to hear a lot of band and just enough orchestra, you know, just so I could keep, keep with the band. Um, and so I had control over all four band members uh, maybe, and, uh, and then various sections of the orchestra. And, and it was just kind of, the, the board was really helpful, but it took time to get the right orchestra mix and, and various things. So I was talking to the, to the people on the boards a lot and, basically the idea of that was to get to a point where in the concert, I was comfortable with what sure. I was hearing. Um, kind of hard to change it on the fly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wish I could, but you know, it's, there's too much going on. 
Is there any band member that you favored more as far as like what you wanted to hear or did you want them all pretty much fairly equal? I tried to make it just sound as natural as possible. Like mm. I would hear them on a record. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm a, I work, I don't work with in-ears and, and mixes that much. I'm, 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 so I'm, I'm basically, I'm most comfortable with an acoustic sounding mix. Same you know? here. Yeah. Yeah. Hard for a drummer to wear in-ears. It's boy, that's a tough transition. Yeah, try a conductor, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was my first. That was my first set of in ears uh, that I had ever done a show on. But and and someone at the symphony had told me um, that not to use in ears and to use over ears, like the players essentially did, just because they were afraid of a feedback or something like that. And then I was talking to a rock musician friend of mine, like just a few weeks before the concert, mm-hmm. um, and. And she was said, "Oh no! Like there's that would never happen because there's they can set some limiter and you would never have you know the inners explode in your." In, and I was like, "Why didn't they tell me that?" So I right. I like wrote to Metallica and I'm like, "Can you can you guys help me like get inners really fast?" Because I realized I can use them. They're really nice. They hooked me up with Ultimate Ears and nice. And like you know, I paid for them, but it was a. Uh, was they they made them much faster than they would normally do it, and so I had them like maybe only a few days before the concert. That oh, was wow. really lucky. Yeah, yeah. Not much time to get used to them and let's here we go. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be the first time I used them anyway, but it was uh it was a godsend for me, of course, to have those. Oh, that's huge. Plus you said, I don't want to wear headphones. I got to look cool in this. I'm going to be on oh, a yeah. big screen movie theater. Exactly. I got to be headbanging. I can't have my headphones flying well, on. And, and they wanted to wire me. I was like, "Nope, you got to do wireless, you know, so I can move around and yep. not trip over, you know, and I, conductors, I'll use in ear, I'll, I'll use headphones in orchestral concerts for click tracks and mm-hmm. movies and things like that. Like sometimes you'll do a live thing where a movie's running and you're with a click, or you know, even with a band that's not in an arena, you can, you know, often for clicks. So I'd had things in my ears, and the wires always were a pain. You know, especially when you're waving your arms around. You know, so they they gave me a really good setup for that, which I really appreciated. Now, when it when it comes time to conduct seventy plus members in Metallica, that has a pretty, you know, what am I trying to say here? Lars keeps the time versus Edwin keeps the time. Yeah. Are we going? Are we going for feel? Are we trying to match each other? How did that go down? Who's really who's really running the show here when it comes to cues and tempos and times? Starts and stops were um, coordinated. Okay. Uh, so. Every song, Metallica has a different count off for every song. Mm-hmm. It's not consistent. Like sometimes it's eight counts, sometimes it's a, you know. Uh, and so we, that was a lot of the work in HQ actually was just talking through the starts and stops and practicing them uh, because that that's critical that we start together and stop together. <laughs> I mean, it sounds really basic. That's but, kind of important. Yeah. I, but it's, it, it's complicated. Cause I have to know, okay, he's going to go, he's going to get four clicks or he's going to get eight clicks. Like four for bells and eight for moth. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And, and some of them, you know, there were, if you go back into the movie or in the recording, um, one thing I thought was really interesting about Lars and, and amazing is his transitions from one song to another. Mm-hmm. He was, he's, you know, he's, he is a big part of what the set is. A lot of that comes from him generally. Um, maybe not only him, but he's certainly the architect of a set. And um, he, I remember like how to stop the songs and he's totally against uh, buttons at the ends of songs. 
He's not like, a fan of that. Do, 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 bam. He, that's like, where are the buttons? He's like, oh, no, man, no buttons. We just want to hang into the next one. Yeah, he likes to go into the next song. And so I had to get used to that whole thing. And I, I kind of, and then he came up with a lot of the transitions, you know, like, okay, one violin note. Uh, yeah, in, in like, I think Rome, I think there was some violin solo in one, the, the percussion transition uh, was his idea. They decided to forego the, uh, you know, the usual uh, audio, the, you know, the, the gunfire audio that they. Intro tape. Yeah, and they decided to, you know, let's have, let's actually do this. And yeah, I love so that. I, yeah, I think there are moments, there are a lot of really interesting transitions in the set that were kind of conceived by Lars. And then I, I had to kind of make them work or uh, come up with ideas, which wasn't hard. It was, it was, you know, I kind of went with the A. And uh, it, it, that was really, really fun to, to see that. I suppose that makes a very structured yet unstructured kind of show happen as far as because, I mean, with an orchestra, I'm sure you're probably used to, you know, you have your start time, you have your cutoffs, and then with hanging it, you know, into the next part, you know, it could be, you know, two seconds here, four seconds there. I suppose you kind of have to adapt to that and just kind of play off each other. Yeah, exactly. Or like, okay, we know that I'm going to cue this person here. This note's going to be hanging. And yep. then, you know, when I get the nod from Lars, for instance, an outlaw, I start this scratch that we had worked out for this yeah. show, you know. And and so that was, that, I think that was a lot of the work at HQ now that I remember it. It's, it's all these, not only just the starts and stops, but kind of the transitions and the yeah. creative. All the little nuances that you add in between songs. Mm-hmm. I can just picture you going to your 70 members going, okay, as we end Moth into Flame, it's really going to slow down. And they're going, what? Yeah, 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 exactly. Moth into Flame. And they're, what? <laughs> well, that's, you know, it's funny with, with orchestras. People think it's hard for orchestras to adjust the tempo. But in fact, so much of the music we play is not at a regular tempo. Like all of classical music, like think about... If you go back and, and, and listen to a lot of classical music or opera, for instance, mm-hmm. there's the most tempo flexibility. Um, so Yeah, I could definitely see that now that you say that. Yeah, for, for accompanying an opera singer, it's slow, every beat is different. And, and right. the kind of the magic of an orchestra is that they can, maybe us and, and gamelan ensembles are the best at like collectively speeding up and slowing down like with that amount of people. And, and so... It's not hard for us in a certain sense, right? And and people have said that a lot about oh, if there's a tempo variation or a song slows down, it's like we do that like every week. That's like what orchestras do all the time. Yeah, riding a bike for you, boss. Yeah, and if you know if if Lars leads on the tempo a little bit, it's it's not a thing for us to to follow it. Uh, and and uh, I think I think that's uh, I think that's why orchestras are kind of amazing. You know, they, that that kind of flexibility is built into the into the orchestra. It's amazing that having that many people, you know, that you're all able to adapt to each other so quickly. You know, I mean, obviously, I know they're all, you know, paying attention to what you're doing. But just the fact that you all work together so coherently, it's absolutely astonishing. It's a it's a you know, it's a family. It's these especially San Francisco Symphony. They they're together. It's their it's their day job. They go into work every week and play another amazing classical program. And they're not a bad job. No, it's an awesome job. And the personalities, you know, of all the players you might imagine are it's 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 the more you get to know an orchestra, the more interesting it becomes. And it has its functioning and dysfunctioning. And, you know, just like a, a rock band, it's the same. Just like idea. any family. Exactly. You said 
about half of the people that were in SNM one were in SNM two. So obviously there were some new people there. Um, obviously you guys are mostly playing classical music when you're doing, um, you know, you're working with the orchestra. How many of those people would you say come from some kind of rock background? Or do you, would you say that most of the people in the symphony come from a pretty strict classical background? I think it changes. Um, I think, I think there are very few members of the San Francisco symphony who don't listen to rock music for fun. Oh, okay. You know, meaning, uh, Maybe not, there may not be listening to Slayer, you know, but, <laughs> uh, but they might be listening to, you know, Fleetwood Mac or Zeppelin or, you know, or blues or something like that. Yeah. And, and, and I, so I think, you know, we're, you listen, you listen to classical music, I'm sure once in a while. Oh, like, absolutely. I mean, we're all eclectic listeners. And I think from the days of, uh, you know, just now that music is so easily accessible to, I think the younger, any younger musician is going to listen to a million different things. Right. And right. they just, it just gets in their ears, you know, more easily. Well, it makes them more versatile too. Yeah. And I think orchestras also are evolving. They do still play a lot of classical music, but in a modern career in an orchestra, you are playing plenty of non-classical music. You're playing film scores. You're playing with, you know, seal or you know might come through or someone like that or an Afri- angelique joe i remember an amazing concert with her as amazing uh, african singer and uh you know i know like in dc like nas did a show like with you know hip-hop is even coming in now with orchestras and interesting yeah it's it's i i think there's this weird thing with orchestras people want to do the orchestra show right uh if you're, it's just, it's just an incredible instrument and, and, to, and I'm glad it's happening more. And Metallica probably the most, it's maybe the most kind of successful and famous example of this kind of collaboration. I can't think of one that's bigger than SNM. I think Kiss did a symphony thing, but it wasn't nearly as big as SNM. And then I know Dream Scorpions, Th- Scorpions, right? yep. Yeah. And Dream Theater has done it too, but yeah, Metallica definitely is the most successful with it. Yeah. If, if anyone in your group is a Slayer fan, I'm putting money on the harp player oh yeah he <laughs> loved it he loved it he was in both snms i was gonna say he's the harp player with the tattoos and the long chain and uh, i yeah. talked to him a little bit before the show started just a amazing guy i had a great conversation with him if we could get a little orchestra slayer mashup going on <laughs> <laughs> i like slayer by the way but uh it would be, yeah but i think you know I, somehow there's there's space in in many of metallica songs to put where the orchestra can fit, you know, um, Cthulhu being an example of that, you know, or one or songs like that or outlaw. Outlaw for sure. Yeah. I think we've all agreed that the orchestra S and M version of outlaw has always been the best version of that song. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's an amazing song, I think. Oh, absolutely. The vocals are so good and just the scope of it and, the weird kind of jazziness of the guitars, you know, it, it goes in such an interesting. It's got good dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. Edwin, can we run through the set list and kind of make some highlights on the songs here? Yeah. Let's start off with uh, Cthulhu, which was the classic opener in SNM one. I couldn't think of a better way to start the show. Do you, you weren't disappointed that it was the same start? No, not at all. Oh, well, okay. Ecstasy, how ecstasy was slowed down yeah. was awesome. Did I do it slower? I don't even know. Little bit slower than S and M one, but it had it had some more warmth, some more depth to it. I listened to S and M one, 
And with ecstasy, I, and I listened to the original, you know, mm-hmm. from the film and I noticed in S and M one, it didn't speed up, you know, correct. And I tried to do a big, I started slower and then I really tried to speed up towards the end on purpose more like the movie, just to do it do it my way. That's what I liked, though, was a build-up. But when mm-hmm. Ecstasy kicked off on night one, I'm like, oh, just that slowed down, laid-back feel. I love that. Yeah. So, yeah, and the, the speed-up was my little contribution to that. That's cool to see little things like that because I, I was really curious, you know, when this whole thing got announced, the differences between, you know, SNM 1 and SNM 2. Obviously, I knew there was going to be, you know, slight variation in the set list, but, you know, you know what you did versus what you know Michael Kamen did. I was very, very curious to see the transitions there. Yeah, everyone. I mean, of course, I revere Michael Kamen as as any SNM fan does, and so honored to be in his, uh, you know, succeeding him, standing there, and uh, you know he's so much a part of SNM too as well. All of his incredible arrangements, but yeah, it's fun to put your own spin on it. Oh, absolutely. Anyway. I got to get to a funny part. Call of Cthulhu, Night 2. Did Lars get a little bit lost towards the end of that song? Lars did not get lost. Explain. Uh, there was there was some confusion. And I don't know. Actually, I don't know. <laughs> hey, you played confusion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know who it was, but we had to kind of adjust a little bit. Okay. It was not Lars. I think it was, I don't know if it was, like a, I don't know who did, but it was, yes, something happened there showbiz and we and we uh we made it out in one piece so that's good i don't know how many people noticed it but uh james kind of came over in front of lars's kit you kind of had this look and then a lot of your members started looking around i said oh shit here comes a train wreck (laughs) yeah it's it's this happens in orchestra you know and orchestra it's all written down and they some there have been moments um in my career uh where I remember one concert I flipped two pages and I was, it was the meters were changing every bar. And so the thing, so the thing, just the orchestra, we were kind of lost for maybe a minute. This is not SNM too. And Mm -hmm. somehow I gave this cue and brought us all back in. So the key is it's, it's actually kind of thrilling is, is trying not to stop Uh, and, and keeping it, bringing the orchestra back in when it needs to come back in. Y'all ended at the same time and that's what we call success, right? Yeah. That's professionalism at its finest right there. Yeah, no one has asked me that up until now. But, uh. <laughs> Jeff, remember when we played First Avenue and we were playing the Justice Medley and I thought we were playing Blackened and that yep. was not pretty. Yep, it was <laughs> same little situation where, you know, all it takes is for one member to just get lost in what they're doing. But, I mean, we recovered it really well. I mean, it's when you've been playing together with a group of musicians for so long, it's even when you screw up, it's almost hard to screw up because it's like, well, I know it, something got a little lost here, but we all know how to come together and bring it back. Yeah, it was it was fun, actually. I was like, oh, my God. Like, all right, here's a little bit yeah. of a challenge. All right, yeah. let's do this. Rock and roll. Can we, can we bring the orchestra back in? But, you know, it's happened to all of us so many times, and uh, we got a really good take of Cthulhu for the record. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. for the record, Lars was not the man at fault. He was not. Good to hear. Yep. Definitely. Cthulhu, we go into Bells? Ah, Yes. Good start. Here's the interesting trivia about bells is um, in SNM one, there is no bell like on the studio record. True. And so I said, I, in the, at HQ, I, I, I said to Lars, do you want to put a church bell in like a live church bell? Cause we have those. And, um, 
And uh, so we did. And I kind of, I think we were playing like the record on beat one. Sure. Um, and then I think it was Lars said, you know, I don't think it's on beat one or we should do it on beat one anymore. That uh, We wouldn't do it this way now. So we moved the bell to, to beat two. Mm-hmm. So it's like one ding on that backbeat. Yeah. Which I actually think is great. So that's a little evolution of For Whom the Bell Tolls and that live version for you uh, super Metallica nerds. You that's know. awesome. Very cool. You can hear it pretty well on the recording, not as epically as on the studio recording, but, but, but if you hear the bells on beat two now. Very cool. And that has crazy, as it came in chart, the, in the movie, the incredible mallet, the xylophone and the, mm-hmm. the players, and then uh, James uh, fist bumps them after they do this really insanely difficult thing. <laughs> it's a great, maybe one of the best moments of the movie. Very cool. Yeah. I can just hear Lars Jeff. I don't want a bell. I just want a four count. Yeah. yeah can't we just have it hang right in? And then we can just, <laughs> you know, come in with a kick drum, you know, that's leading somewhere. I, li- I like the bell and beat too. I'm into it. That's awesome. Bells, we go into uh, some death magnetic material and day that never comes. I love how the orchestra started it off instead of the band. Yeah. This was a very successful new chart by Bruce Coughlin. I, this one had a great sense of drama, I thought. Uh, it really had sweep, and, and it got so exciting at the end. Uh, and there was one moment where I asked Bruce uh, Coughlin to, uh, I think it was in the song, to add violins to Kirk's guitar solo. This like, at the end. And, uh, sure. and we added that right at the last minute, you know. Uh, and it's pretty exciting, and it worked pretty well. So there's a moment where Kirk is playing and with the violins, like standing right there. And I told him, Oh, they're going to play along with you here. You know, so go over there and join them. Huh? Yeah. And he did. It was really, it was fun. So that's cool that you had, you know, quite a bit of say, it seems like as far as like, if you had an idea, you know, they seemed very open to it. Yeah. If anyone had an idea, I mean, you know, sometimes they're not, but generally it was all, let's make this as good as we can. And, and there was a great team and Bruce was so amazing. You know, he did, these new charts and so flexible and into it. And uh, so I would propose and we tried. And if we didn't like it, we'd take it out. And if we did like it, we left it in. That's quite the collaboration. Sounds like everyone was open and what an end piece. Yeah. A masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, basically. Was the symphony ready for the uh, crowd reaction during the sing-along part and memory remains? Uh, I No one was ready for that. I don't think I don't think even Metallica was ready for that on night two. Uh, it was pretty two blue number night one away. Yeah, I mean we knew it would happen, and it happened in the first S and M. But you know, I guess twenty years had passed in this iconic moment, especially for the the club members and the fans. You know, sure. It, we ha- I think we 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 had to just go on over the cheering. Is that what happened? I don't remember, and I can't tell from the film into the next song. James was kind of given the cut to the throat notion, and then Lars sits back down and hits the kick drum a few times. Like, all right, time to move on. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was that was the most amazing. You know, um, if you're not a rock star, like if you're an orchestra musician or something, that that is kind of the epitome of any rock moment I've ever experienced on stage. Just that energy and that kind of endless uh, enthusiasm was was you know. You can't forget that either yeah. in the crowd or on stage. It was pretty extraordinary moment. 20,000 people around you. That's going to be a, a goosebump moment for many. Yeah. And we're very close to them too. You know, 
there wasn't that kind of di- distance. And the first metallic I've been to many metallic shows. I don't want to admit how many, but I was shocked. There was no barricade. It was yeah, so cool. Yeah. They were really into that too. It was cool. It was like, everybody's together as one. And here we are. And we, you know, when we designed the stage, that was a real, I, I've talked about this before, but the key thing to make the stage the circular stage work um, were the pathways, um, the four pathways out mm-hmm. or the three, I guess, cause I was the fourth pathway, but um, that allowed the inner circle of the band to be a bit smaller, uh, you know, where the band was, they wanted it bigger, but then that also allowed the orchestra to be able to see each other since the circle was smaller. Sure. So the solution also was great for the fans because they could walk out really just, you know, five feet away from Get nice and close. Yeah. And they, they all took advantage of that really well. That was incredible. So I got to know how did the song confusion make its way into the set list? Because us diehard fans, we love that song total surprise, but just not a song that I think any of us were expecting would have gotten added to S and M too. How did how did that kind of come about? I don't know. It was on the list. You know, I, I was presented with a list of songs, and Confusion was one of them. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a, it wasn't up for discussion really. Oh, okay. Uh, may, at least not with with my end of things. Maybe in the band it was, but um, we had already passed that point. There was only one song that was that was debated by the time I saw the set list. And that was uh, Outlaw or Bleeding Me. There was a question of which one to do. Who had the final say? Me. <laughs> good choice. From the bottom of my heart, Edwin, thank so, you. But Bleeding Me is a really good song. Oh, absolutely. That's a tough choice, but well, yeah, Outlaw takes it. I just thought there were more. There was more for the orchestra to do. And everyone. I think in the band, they were just throwing up their hands and not being able to decide, like in a positive way, and they just threw it out to me and, and Michael or whoever was. Yeah, so I... I said, well, between the two, I prefer Outlaw for this, but... I'm so happy you picked that yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. But Confusion was cool. Little things. There's a shout-out to the planets, uh, Mars from the planets, in the very beginning, in the, dun, in the little... Dun, 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 dun. There's these kind of orchestra... Um, these kind of um, crescendos that happen that are a direct quote almost from, from Holes to the Planets, oh, uh, Mars, cool. Bring of War... And uh, the other fun feature of that, which you see just a little bit in the movie, though it's quite subtle in the mix, is that Bruce um, had uh, taiko drums, like the Japanese, uh, the, the rims, yep. you know, so, so all the percussionists mm-hmm. in the back are playing these really cool, boom, chak, chak, these, these drums, which I thought were a great touch. Just very adds cool. and fills it in just that much more. Yeah, yeah. On their stadium tour in 2017, Edwin, they used the taikos in the Did middle, they? in the bridge of uh, Now That We're Dead, they kind of had this breakdown where all four of them had their own Tycho. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, so cool. Powerful moment. I don't think Bruce knew that. I think it was just a coincidence. That, that they the just happened to be doing it? Playing, yeah, that it returned. So cool. Adds a lot of uh, lot of oomph to it. It's a great rock instrument for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. A couple days ago, uh, we finally got to see the video and the song released of uh, moth into flame powerful yeah. but uh very smooth how the strings make this more of a a mellow tune now really i guess i think you just you know i wouldn't we've say had mellow three, maybe just a little bit smoother <laughs> a lot yeah. smoother we've had three or four years since hardwired came out to you know kind of have moth burnt in our brain but boy you add strings to that in the chorus and boy that's a smooth one 
Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, it was hard. It was fast. And so um, we, were, we were holding on for dear life for this one, but it was, it was pretty fun. This, I remember that's just, I think that's the French were playing that too. It's super fast. Yeah. But the um, build a higher wall part, the chorus part, that's, yeah. those strings just make it so smooth. I was listening to it this morning before we came on and really smooth. Adds yeah, this lot. is the first time I'm hearing the final mix. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, I did help in January with uh, various things when they were working on the album. One was just making sure that the orchestra was was balanced correctly in and of itself, like all the parts that should be heard. But it was really up to Greg how loud or soft, you know, the orchestra was going to be in relation to the band and Lars, whoever else is working on that. So I, my job was just to kind of make sure the orchestra was represented accurately and then oh, sure. how much or how little was not up to me. But it was it was nice that they asked me to do that. Was that you and Greg Fiddleman at HQ or somewhere else? Um he would send me some things and then I did come into HQ for one day with Greg. Um, and I, there were some uh, video sync issues that I was helping with as well, uh, which, which we worked pretty hard on in the re-edit, uh, mostly with, with the conductors actually, but making sure that the, the bows were moving in the right direction, that, that there were some, um, there were some time code issues with some of the cameras and we just had to do it by, by eye to make it work. So we put a lot into that to make it look very, and if you look at any orchestra thing, you'll see things that mess up all the time. Um, we were really good with S and M two to kind of eliminate almost every single one of those, which was I love hours, hours of work. Yeah. I love the attention to detail. It drives yeah. me nuts when I watch a music video and the drummer hits a cymbal and it's not even close. Yeah. I think that we were very, we spent a lot of time on that stuff. I can't wait to see this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that when it was one night in the movie theater, but now that it's been mastered and you guys had so much time with it, it's, I just know it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, Bob Ludwig, who mastered it, who masters a lot of Metallica stuff, is a huge classical music fan as well. He loves contemporary classical music. I had known oh, him cool. before, so I was thrilled. and he was. It was great to hear that he was working on it. And he really went for a more, I think uh, he told me, he went for a more open and less compressed sound, you know, for the orchestra. Nice. For this particular one. Make it sound a little bit more organic, a little more natural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Well, after Moth into Flame, we go into our favorite song. I think maybe amongst the three of us, Outlaw Torn. Yeah, maybe. I love it. It it just is, it's just, um, it's just a great came in arrangement. The little intro I thought was really good. Um, I love that. That, that Lars came up with. And, uh, and that James's vocals were just incredible on this. He sings his heart out on that song. Yeah. I've been, I've been reading a little bit that people are saying, Oh, they auto to James, you know, I hear all the, auto-. I was like, there's no, audit. there's no, there's no auto tune. That's, on this. All, that's all BS. We know the real deal. <laughs> yeah. He sounded, he sounded incredible. I mean, the singing was insane on that concert on both nights. So. Outlaw is one of those songs. It's the last track off a of load. It's been a, a rare tune since 1996. They've played it live maybe 20, 25 times in you know 20 years. Right. It's it's rare. The diehards love it. S and M one really made it its true kind of calling, and to hear it again on two, it was a great call. Yeah, and it may have. I don't know. I have a feeling this will become a even more canonical Metallica song. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I hope so. I think it's one of their best. 
it's amazing. It's just the last track on an album, and then it, they kind of just tucked it away for so many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but both S and M's have essentially brought it back to life. Jeff, is that one of your favorite songs to play live? Oh, absolutely. And it's you know we just started playing this song live within you know a year, year and a half ago, somewhere around there. And definitely one of my favorite songs to play live, but it's so tough to play that song without hearing the orchestra symphony. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm so used to listening to the S and M version that when we play it live, we play album version and there's nothing else there. So uh, I'm, I want to find a way to uh, incorporate that someday live so we can do that. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, I think, you know, the tempo of that song is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's unique among Metallica. That, that it's a particular groove that you don't always hear. And it just has this kind of slow inevitability uh, to it. That's very classical. I think this kind of like mm-hmm. slow burn that is, that is really just kind of held back in the pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's a very hard song for me not to rush. Yeah, exactly. And when we play it live towards the end, I always miss that marimba part in SNM one. Yeah, it's funny. Like for me, like I don't know, some songs sound empty, like Outlaw. Even one, which maybe is more debatable because it's more of a classic. The orchestral version is really amazing, and Cthulhu, in a sense, almost. You know, just that there's so much. Like Cthulhu is such a dialogue between what was originally written and what was added onto it, and. They, they kind of converse in a really interesting way. Yep. And so when you hear the original, as great as it is, you're like missing half of a conversation that later happened in a certain sense. Great way of putting it. Very true. Well, we move out of all into the uh, classic, what I associate S&M with, No Leaf Clover. Yeah. It's the original. It was fun. Do they, do they play it a lot in, in concert? Or is that kind of a regular or ish? Um, kind of. The late 90s. Well, Berkeley was late 90s, 2000. They played it a lot. 04, St. Anger Eric kind of came and went. Didn't really get much play in Death Magnetic. No, not much during that era. Mm. Right when it came out, it was a pretty live staple every night. And then it yeah. kind of faded away. And then they just obviously started bringing it back before you guys. Love the song. Always loved it. Powerful. There was, yeah, there was a fun, uh, the director, Wayne Isham, said he was going to have a camera a guy run across stage to me, like do like a running shot for the downbeat of No Leaf Clover. And uh, like, uh, he's like, when he gets close to you, give the downbeat. And I guess the shot didn't work because it didn't make into the movie. But there was some guy like in the, like the second night running across stage, like <laughs> literally wait. And then I had to give the down. That's a right for you, huh? Yeah, it was cool. Wayne's made some classic videos over the years. Yeah, yeah, it was super cool. Uh, Clover goes into... Halo on Fire, my favorite song off of Hardwired. It's a beautiful song. Yes. A long uh, tune. Yeah. I mean, they're all long. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Metallica. Yeah. But this one, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. Like those these different kind of uh, pre-choruses and bridges and how one thing transfers. And then this this great call out at the end. Yeah, the ending is such a... It's it, so... It's so sing-along, but yeah, yet yeah. there's no vocals. Like You can't help but hear that little solo that Kirk's doing at the end, and you want to just like hum along with it. Yeah, and uh, they have little nicknames for the sections of the different songs. I forget which one is which, just so they know where to start. You know, Guy and to hang to into the third guy. Yeah, and they have little nicknames like the Cthulhu Breakdown or something. I think that's in one of the songs, or like Thin Lizzy section or, you know. 
so they they kind of nick they have these kind of internal nicknames for these these different sections just for rehearsal purposes. And so in the score in the in the music sheet music those are written in. Uh, I think Greg gave oh, gave cool. gave Bruce all the the kind of band breakdown parts. And so if I wanted to tell the band where we were, I could say, oh, we're in the Cthulhu breakdown here. Or and these were nicknames that they use among themselves. Just kind of a fun fact. That's cool. Yeah. And then intermission comes. You go backstage and catch your breath for 20 minutes going, whew, this is working. We're doing it. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, you kind of just are waiting to get back. But orchestra rules uh, mandate intermissions. I think Metallica would have been very happy not to have, an, have had an intermission. Uh, oh, so that's like a union rule. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And uh, I think it's good. It's keeping the orchestra fresh and giving them a chance to breathe it. I don't think it was a bad idea, but it was an in- – and I think actually uh, – the, considering what happened after intermission, it's kind of good to reboot, you know, and not just go into that uh, to kind of restart with that crazy set at the beginning of the second half. Is that when we saw the picture of you backstage playing Kirk's mummy? I was right before. That was right before. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Great picture. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little picture. jealous, not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't greeny, but, you know, it was a, the mummy was pretty cool. Yeah, it's about second best. Yeah. Is that your favorite? Yeah, you like the mummy. That's definitely one of both of for both of us. That's one of our favorites. Okay, yeah, those are amazing. Jeff has a replica mummy that we play on stage. Oh, really? It's almost yeah. identical to his. And while it's a great playing guitar, it's not quite Kirk's. <laughs> <laughs> so you come out, and who whose idea was it for the two songs with Iron Foundry? And how do you say the other one? Uh, City and Sweet. The idea, original, like the original conversations for S&M were, I think, essentially between Lars and, and M- MTT, as we call Michael Tulson Thomas. Mm-hmm. They are, they're, they're very good friends. They've had a long friendship. Lars, Lars comes to a lot of symphony concerts with Michael. And, you know, San Francisco is kind of a small town. That's one of the really interesting things about living there is that, you know, you could have it backstage you know, after a San Francisco symphony concert, like Lars, like Alice Waters, you know, the cook, and then like Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, wow. the same time. <laughs> it's like whoever lives up there. And it's just, or Bonnie Raitt shows up or, you know, it's a very... Uh, it's quite the backstage hallway. It is really interesting because it's, uh, it's it's not a big city, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and that community, you know, rock musicians and class musicians and chefs and, and writers... And film director, they all do interact. And it's one thing I really, I don't know of any city like that, where there's kind of a, that kind of family feeling among creative people who live there. Maybe we might have to move to San Fran, Shane. There you go. Cool. I think uh, Lars is so involved in the art community and film anyway. He's got to know everyone in town. Yeah. So it's, it's, it was, you know, he, that's where I f- had first met Lars. And um, I think that was early 2000s. And uh, I was in a suit and tie as I was, you know, backstage. And uh, I don't think Lars would remember this, but MTT uh, introduced me. Hey, Edwin, this is Lars. You know, Lars Edwin, you know, he's a he's a big fan of your music. Or he'd asked me if I knew Metallica. I was like, yes. Sure. So uh, MTT uh, said, oh, yeah, Lars, Edwin's a big fan of your music. And like Lars looked me up and down in my suit. And he's like, yeah, big fan. <laughs> <laughs> And he's going like this, oh, yeah, sure you are. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. He was super nice, but I thought that was hilarious. 
<laughs> I totally got where he was coming from with that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. So uh, they, but I think when they, you know, it's in the Metallica spirit, if we're going to do this again, how are we going to do it uh, differently? And the idea from both of them was to involve the musicians more, to play orchestral, you know, have the San Francisco Symphony have a moment, you know, on the show. Sure. And also to have Metallica collaborate on a classical piece that was all in the works, you know, in a sense before I was called into the project. I loved it. I think Michael had maybe asked me what pieces might be good at some point. So we agreed on those two pieces. There are a lot of heavy pieces we could have played uh, for our orchestra feature. You know, um, there are pieces like the Rite of Spring, which every person should know. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, the planets would be another one or even something a bit cliche, like Ride of the Valkyries, like the Wagner. Right. Like we could have done that. Um, I think the Scythian Suite was a great choice because it was it's short and it's super heavy and loud and it's like famously loud among us classical music people. It's it's quite obscure. It's it's on the obscure side, and it's it's just the right amount of time. It's like the length of a short song, and uh, I, I thought it was a great choice uh, because and it but it's not like something that gets played every week in orchestra concerts. It's not a super famous. Uh, piece of music. Iron Founder is kind of a loop piece. Like it has very distinct sections that repeat. Mm -hmm. um, and so it lent itself to teaching a rock band, you know, cause it, the form is pretty straightforward. There's, there's something they can play stuff over and over again. And the amount of time we had, um, which wasn't much to kind of learn it. That was an appropriate and, and good choice. I think. I'll just say, well, Metallica is used to playing things that, uh, kind of loop if you listen to the saint anger album everything is just repeated <laughs> <laughs> we have a verse and a chorus okay let's make it 10 minutes right let's yeah. just repeat it nine times and we're good to go but uh it was good it was a good one to teach because it again it was a heavy piece it it kind of it was you could get the the point across and 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 they could do stuff with it and then i think it worked pretty well it's pretty cool to hear it oh it's heavy it's fun the irony is like this is now like going to be like the most famous piece of classical music, you know, because just the amount of people will actually hear it compared to a lot of other pieces of classical music. It's been elevated to like, you know, top 10 classical music pieces of all time now because of Metallica. Iron Foundry, 11 million yeah. downloads. Right. I know, exactly. <laughs> That's good. You take a piece that wasn't as popular and now yeah. you resurrect it to be something a lot bigger than what probably a lot of people ever anticipated it to be. I can't imagine. I know nothing about the composer. This guy Masalov. He's he's very obscure. Who knows? Who knows what he? He probably would have been pretty stoked. You know, it would have been louder than he would ever imagine, which is, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Very cool. I don't know how many people noticed, but you were off to Lars's left. Oh, helping him find where the cutoff was. He asked me. And uh, I could tell he was a little uncomfortable with it because all he did was pretty repetitious stuff. Yeah. And I, I totally sympathize with him because it does repeat this like inordinate amount of time. Mm -hmm. And if you learned it like a day ago, mm -hmm. you know, and if he stops, the other guys will stop. That's, you know, it wasn't just, you know, Lars that had this kind of, uh, but he very oh, cleverly Lars never used... stops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he very, very cleverly uh, asked me to stand on the side and give him this. And we are just, it was we were laughing so hard about I it. It was like that. an in joke the whole time. Yeah. And then when you guys nailed it, you gave the hole in one kind of fist <laughs> yeah, pump. Yeah. 
it turned out it was like the most amu- it, was, it was very amusing uh it's not in the movie unfortunately but yes you're, you're you caught a lot of stuff there shane that's good yeah i don't i don't miss much it was yeah. it was fun to watch that dynamic between you two because i could i could tell he's kind of like i need some i need a security blanket here yeah, and the second night he did some dance right i think he did the pump again, and then he did the kind of yeah. <laughs> the lasso above the head kind of dance. That might be in the movie. It might be in the movie. The dance. It's pretty funny. When you've seen as many shows as Shane has has seen, and you've watched as many concerts as we have, and everything, you start to focus on all the the little details that most fans, you know, they're just listening to the music, all the, watching them, all the visuals. Yep. Yeah. It, it's all the little things. It's like, all right, I'm going to look for the things that no one else is going to be looking for. Yeah. Well, you you are catching them. Yeah. That was fun to watch. All to uh, credit. There you go. My second favorite part of the night, Unforgiven 3, James Only. Yes. Uh, I, I, I'm surprised they haven't released that yet. I thought it's such a special. And the, I think the real, the hardcore Metallica fans are really taken by that. It was interesting to watch him without a guitar. There was some little kind of insecurity, like, what do I do with my hands? Well, literally. I mean, he said that. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. He said that, and he was asking people what he should do with his hands. I mean, you know, during this, and there's moments where he's touching the mic, he's touching his waist, he's got his hands in the air. Yeah, it was really. I mean, I think he he was really excited about doing it. Um, it was the most uh, revised song. This was another new arrangement by Bruce Coughlin. I think he did a really good job with it. Beautiful. Um, he, we all worked really hard, like the team of Bruce, Greg, James, and I, um, that song was revised, I think eight times before, before we got to the point where James liked it, um, and felt comfortable with what he was hearing. So it was a really intense, um, creative process, all very positive and very, um, nothing nothing bad but it was just it just took a lot of work and 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 also kind of you know how to articulate what you want to hear from an orchestra when you don't work with orchestras you know so we kind of had to do a lot of mind reading and and james is very articulate and can kind of express all this stuff but uh, you know there's still a communication gap that's and in that case that's where that 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 language difference of how we talk about music and how we describe sure. music between rock musicians and classical musicians is quite different different and uh so for me often I'm a translator between the two languages there you go and so I, I you know I had some role in that it's like oh, maybe he means this you know um and then we tried different things but it was it was fun to watch that develop and I'm I'm glad that that the fans the people who love this music responded so well to this and we, you know, we rely on written music way too much in a certain sense. Let's see. I like, I love the flexibility of when it's not written down. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'm proud of it. I think the arrangement's really beautiful. The song shines in this format, I think as well. So, Oh yes. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well done. I thought day that never comes was going to be the only death magnetic we got. So this was really a surprise to us. Yeah. They, I guess they have all, all albums featured in this concert. Yeah, they touched them all. Unforgiven 3, my second favorite, which leads us to my favorite part of the night, Mr. Scott Pingle. Yes, uh, Anesthesia. We talked about it already. Um, it was just an incredible moment. And it just, the. I mean, I don't know if it's easy, if you've got a sense of how hard it is to play bass like that. Um, like I've tried a string instrument. It's... 
unbelievably challenging. It's way harder than it looks. Oh, uh, I, it's unbelievable. And I think one way to just, I'm a bass player too, like an orchestral bass player. And, and just to get that kind of intonation perfectly in tune, as you can see, no frets on the, on the, yep. on the fingerboard, huge, totally huge leaps that he has to make, you know, the amount of ground you have to cover. I've tried playing in upright, you know, bass yeah. like that before. And it is so hard. It did not sound even close to what it was supposed to. I tried it once and I was like, yep, this is, this is difficult. So, I mean, just as a feat of, I mean, it's virtuosic enough on the electric bass, you know, but I think it's 10 times harder on the instrument Scott was playing. And, and that fact that he played it so flawlessly both nights and that he created this whole sound world with the pedals, which he had never used before. Actually, he bought that bass specifically for the concert, the stick bass that he was playing. Oh, wow. Um, And what else could I say about that? What do one of those go for? Less than an acoustic bass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I'm sure his his bass. I mean, string instruments. I don't know. You know, cellos and like the whole Stradivarius thing. Um, those are worth millions of dollars. You mm-hmm. know, um, and basses are the least expensive of the string instruments, but those are, can run in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, the the stick bass, and actually the orchestras, like the big orchestras, like San Francisco Symphony, invest in basses or give players uh, kind of a, a loan or sometimes even a, you know, cash to buy these incredible instruments. Cause since there are no mics, the quality of the instruments um, is really important. You know, the, you want string instruments on stage that make the best sounds. So orchestras actually invest in those. So I think the stick bass, I can't, you know, I wouldn't in the thousands or maybe, but not nearly as expensive as a, as a acoustic bass. Interesting. Yeah. Here, Jeff, here's a $100,000 guitar. Take it on tour. Yeah. Well, I guess they are, they're out there, too. <laughs> Throw it in the trailer. Let's go. Yeah, yeah I, I guess, you know, I'll stop complaining about having to drop a couple grand on a guitar. At least I don't have to drop hundreds of thousands to millions. Wow. It's like a home mortgage, and, you know. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but, yeah, Scott is just a hero, I mean, of this. So he just performed. We were all blown away, and and it was such a, you know, what a part of, I mean, it, it kind of it, it epitomizes everything that we set out to do, even though it was just one person, it's just taking an orchestral player, playing this great piece by Cliff Burton, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing it so well, it, reinventing it to a certain extent, adding like kind of Bach and things like that, um, making it his own, um, but still paying the best tribute you can imagine, seeing a, a, an arena you know, go crazy for an orchestral player like that. It's all, it's all, it's all there in that one, one, one moment. I was going to say that in the short time that Cliff was in the band, he was always mentioning classical music and told Lars and James when they were writing Master Puppets, he was a huge fan of Bach. And then mm-hmm. for, for Scott to put his own twist in it, especially in the first couple minutes when he's doing his own thing to it, which is a nod to Bach, also, yeah. Oh, it was incredible. And then the distortion kicks in, and then the wah or the or the fuzz that he was using comes in. I think, I yeah, I think like the the source material from Bach for all that stuff. Um, for all of you fans who might want to get into that, is is are the cello suites particularly? Mm-hmm. So Bach wrote six pieces for solo cello. Um, you can go hear Yo-Yo Ma play them online or watch videos, but. I'm sure that's what Cliff was listening to specifically were, were cello suites. And, and a lot of orchestral bass players play those 
suites on cello, those cello suites on the bass, but they're kind of perfect pieces of music for a solo instrument. And um, I'm sure that was in his ear. So Edwin, there's not many times where I get goosebumps in a live setting and then I look around the people sitting in the section with me and you have grown men, full on metalheads crying, listening to anesthesia. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, again, it was very similar to the reactions of the band members when they first heard Scott do it over at HQ. It was very, um, it was very emotional. I can imagine for them particularly. Like a little bit of Cliff came back for just a, a couple moments and we got to live it. And his father obviously was there, as you know. And uh, Ray? Yeah, so Scott got to meet Ray. We all did. You know, he passed away this year, as you, as you know. So it was uh, very special to have him in the audience for that. To be able to see that. I can only imagine what he was thinking. Yep. All right, Jeff. Sane anger time, buddy. Yeah, man. All within my hands. So... Uh, you know, I'm one of the rare Metallica fans that are super into St. Anger. So the fact that they touched every album, whether or not it was acoustic or not, I was super excited for that. Uh, the question I have for you though, is did you listen to the original version of all within my hands before working on the acoustic version with them? I heard it. <laughs> what were, what were your thoughts compared, you know, comparing I the mean, two I like together. the acoustic version better. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I don't blame you. I mean, like I said, I'm a big St. Anger fan and I like the acoustic version better, but you know, just obviously they're two, you know, polar opposites as far as the arrangements. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's much darker in the non-acoustic version and the lyrics are very dark, obviously yeah. uh, super dark. And so, uh, and they had already done a, an acoustic version had they released that as well yeah i think it was for the bridge for benefit, benefit. Mm-hmm. yep they had an acoustic version of that and so they already liked that and 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 then i think the orchestration adds so much to that it's very beautiful that's oh, yeah. th- that's the other clear um classical music quote from bruce is in that song um it's there's a piece that uh this composer sansons wrote called the carnival of the animals and it's a movement called the aquarium so in the second pre-chorus, I think this uh, dee da dee da dee da. There's these little rippling things, uh, and that, that's a that's a almost a direct quote from that piece. Very cool. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it closer now. It's beautiful, but when you think of "All Within My Hands," there's two totally different songs now. When you think of that title, yeah, they're really. I mean, it's, it's a shocking difference. It's a beautiful kind of transformation. The only same thing is the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Extra singer on stage. Kirk's playing a twelve string. I mean, whole whole new ball game. Well, they just released that quarantine. Uh, was it blackened or so? Yes. Which is which is also really cool. I think kind of version of that. I just love how it was remote, and all four of them are in their own kind of yeah. jam space of their homes. Yeah, and uh, it looks like they're rehearsing today, according to yeah, creeping death. Yeah little creeping death uh fly on the wall footage but maybe they'll do an entire acoustic i mean the, i mean the acoustic versions of all these songs are really beautiful i think oh they're great they could do so much with it it'd be cool to get an unplugged ep while they're in you know covid slash quarantine kind of super cool it'd be cool to see them throw something like that together yeah, well now we have two two songs so it's a start yeah lars is wearing a mask playing creeping death this morning i'm thinking boy that can't be fun <laughs> Masks are not fun. But... He said, I, I can't even breathe up in this piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wherever I may roam. Lasers. Lasers and a sitar. 
Yes, the sitar. That had a fun count off. You see that in the movie. You and Kirk had a little moment there. Yeah, he had he counted off to me. So he started it and um worked out fine. But that's whose a, idea was it to bring the sitar in? I don't know. Is that did they not usually do it when they play live or no, it's just a tape. Oh, they do a tape. So cool they did that then, yeah. All I know is the uh, sitar that he used was actually the one they recorded the Black Album. That was the same guitar. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know that that was a, that they don't usually do that live. Uh, yeah, they just have their intro tape from the album version that's tuned in the E-flat tuning that they're in. And Lars gives a... Two count. Yep, count on the China before it kicks in. And Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah. I think maybe SM, did, SM1 did... Well, obviously, they did... That, that acoustically also in SM one because the orchestra parts are there for that sitar part. Yeah, but there wasn't a sitar in one. It was just the orchestra playing that intro. Oh. And then just a two count into ga 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 ga. I'll check it out. You mentioned lasers. Was this a was this a first for your people? Um I I maybe a laser here and there, but that, those are some pretty serious green lasers. Pretty on. intense, huh? <laughs> yeah, I was I was worried about my getting flashed in the eyes or something. And then, and in the set list, it was like uh, Rome laser, you know, on the set list. Keep your eyes down, kids. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if that's like a warning or or whatever for that. So, some of their set lists have like their pyro warnings as well. I'm sure that's what it was. It was similar to that. Yeah, this was sure. a laser warning. It was the first laser warning I've ever had in my career. <laughs> so I, that was that was the first. I like that. Going into one. Um, your people have the entire introduction in the percussion section for the guns and bombs war scene. Yeah. Lars's idea. Um, and basically I went up to the Jake Nisley. who's a kind of young, younger, well, they all look pretty young there, but he's the principal percussionist. I come up with war sounds like from, from the record and, mm-hmm. they, and they did. And then the second night, I think only Lars got in on the act. I was going to say he went by, back there and joined them for some rim shots. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's in the movie for sure. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Sounds like Lars had a ton of say in this. How about the other three guys? I I don't know. I think I think as far as sets and transitions, Lars had a lot of, and 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 maybe he's just the the point guy for it. I'm sure they all discuss it, and if you know, but um, he he seems very much into those transitions in between things, and mm-hmm. also it's like maybe it's something he's particularly interested in, you know. And maybe the other guys are less interested in it or, you know, people have their own roles they play, but certainly those transitions and kind of coming up with this overall feel and flow was, was Lars was someone I was talking to a lot about it. Did anything like one or puppets get rewritten Edwin or pretty much straightforward? Uh, one was not rewritten. Uh, one is one of the best Cayman charts in my opinion. Uh, I just think that those are, again, it's like a dialogue between a new composer and, and the original song and those string kind of counter melodies work so are so elegant and so beautiful i think especially in the opening um and it just gives more grandeur it gives so much grandeur to the song i think uh which is you know the song benefits from that sure uh, and so i i just love i think one and outlaw are my two favorite and no leaf actually is really are just incredible ones from cayman um the actually puppets and Sandman were rewritten. I don't know if you noticed that those are new. Uh, I knew about puppets. I didn't know about Sandman. Sandman is new. Uh, 
from SNM one. You could probably hear it if you want once you hear them back to back and the recording comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some desire. I think Puppets was uh, the least successful uh, arrangement of SNM one that was kind of universally agreed by Greg and the band members, and there was a desire to. I think it may have even been in the wrong key at times. Like it was a funny, it was kind of, it was, it was something that they really wanted to redo. That's a tough song to put an orchestra with, you know, with the exception of the interlude, which obviously that part is very, itself, you know, yeah. yeah, very melodic and, you know, but the rest of the song, I mean, that's a, that's a tough song. It's, you know, like moth, you know, it's a upbeat, you know, trucking song. It's I'm sure it's probably pretty tough to keep up with that. Yeah. We rehearse that a lot. It's, and you know, they play it fast. Yeah, they play everything fast. Yeah. Even the slow songs, it's like, oh, no, we got to play it like 5, 10 BPM faster than what the record is. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it has those little meter changes and things like that. And, I mean, we could do it, but I, certainly as far as the Speed Demon songs, Moth and Puppets were, were, were the ones. And the orchestra did a pretty amazing job uh, keeping up. <laughs> well, it's a good thing you guys didn't have to do Blackened. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, and the, so the, the, these pu- puppets was Bruce Copland. He did a wonderful thing in the interlude with these like uh, trumpets. Like you'll, if you didn't hear it in the concert, if you listen, there's a beautiful like trumpet, actually several trumpets playing kind of a counter melody um, to the, to the big riff. And maybe yeah, that's yeah, really spectacular. And uh, long yeah. song too. And there's some debate, someone, when I was uh preparing for the songs of Metallica, people were like, sent me this crazy YouTube video of like what that funny bar and puppets, like, da-da-da, da-da, you know, and someone said it was like a 24.7 over four, you know, that it wasn't a true five, eight, you know, or, <laughs> and uh, it's like the funniest video ever. That's and, cool. Like if we break it down and get technical. Yeah. They did. He did this whole thing. Here we go. I will say just for all those super nerds, it was notated as a five, eight in, in the, uh, in the uh, orchestra parts. There you go. You heard it here first. Five eight, Jeff. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, or something seven eight. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Well, as we come out of puppets, the uh, the two closers, biggest hits of the night. Nothing else matters. And Sandman. Yeah. Oh, also a great Cayman chart. Uh, and and you know, it's in the movie. It's visually so beautiful. Uh, nothing else matters with the with the iPhones going off and the blue lighting and the kind of the camera angles are, are gorgeous, how they kind of revolve around. And that's been released. So you can see it came out so nicely. Yeah. Video has been released. What used yeah. to be a Bic lighter is now a iPhone 11. It's nice to see the lights though. I mean, you know, the I, sharper I, lights, fewer people are, fewer people are walking around lighters these days, I guess as time passed. So it's nice that there's been a, a replacement for the lighter. Yeah. At least there is still something out there for people to, put up in the air for yeah. everyone to see make it glow and sandman is a fun when you hear it you'll notice um bruce did some fun kind of haunted house orchestrations and um that was a fun because michael came back up and conducted and we switched you know uh places that was you know how to end with us all on stage at the same time i was gonna ask that so MTT's rocking a keyboard, but I couldn't hear it in the uh, live mix. Are we going to hear that on the record? Mm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> More of a visual effect, yeah. huh? <laughs> it might be in there. I'll have to listen to it. I haven't listened to it carefully. I'll see if it, if you if you hear it, it'll be a bit faint, I would say. He um, just wanted to look cool and rock out. Well, we, we, we had a, he was playing. I mean, we had to have a, um, and he's a wonderful pianist, actually. Um, we had to find a way 
since he was such an important part of the show and, and, you know, and planning it from the beginning and he's absolutely, there's such a close tie. And, and for me to be on stage, you know, since I conducted the entire concert, except for a few things, it would be weird for me to walk off and not be there at the end. Well, yeah, especially on the closer. Yeah. So there was, there was, you know, there was a lot of, that's how we figured out how to do it was to bring Michael up, and have a switch midway and have him play keys at the end and be on stage. And it, it works like as a conceptually pretty well, I think. Oh yeah. And you know, Metallica is always really good about kind of making everyone involved, you know, even from way back when, when they got, you know, inducted to the hall of fame and whatnot, they had, you know, their previous members up on stage with them. And so, you know, they're, they're really good at in making sure everyone is included, you know? Yeah. And you know, we all wanted that to happen. So it was, it also had a cool, I got to kind of sit, you know, at the end of Nothing Else Matters, sit down like in front of the drums, which looks really nice. And people are like, are you sad? You look really sad. <laughs> it's coming to an end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Um, but it was it was cool. Yeah, it was a great, great ending. And the new orchestration, I think, is really fun. It, in the middle, yeah, there's a middle section with it where it kind of stops, which I don't think was in SNM1 and kind of restarts. And that was that. It's a memory. A distant memory. The I memory remains. Yeah, it remains. <laughs> it totally remains. How we get to relive it when it's released August 28th and do it all over again. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm, you know, like I said, I haven't heard the final mix. I'm excited to hear it. I've, I've seen the re-edit of the movie because um, I was working on it. I think it's really nice. Um, and now there are several versions. I mean, they're, they've definitely slowed down. the. It's It's less hyperactive. Than, than than the studio release it's more kind of steadier and and i i think you know i i love i kind of like the craziness of the in theater edit the first one yeah but I, I i like this as well they're 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 different so there's quite a bit of difference between the one night in the theater and what we're going to see on the 28th i think so Visually? i don't yeah i would say i yeah I, I, it's I, 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 you know, it's the same shots, the same people, but mm-hmm. I think um, they slowed it down and just made it more, you know, a little more cinematic, a little more cinematic, yeah, than the opening, um, which was super like hyper frenetic. But in the theater, it was kind of it was kind of cool. Oh yeah, it gave you that kind of intense live feel, you know, like you're right there with everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I only saw the in theater release once when it was in theaters, um, but. So I, it's hard to know what the difference are, but I know there was there was a lot of work done, you know, the re-edit and on the sound. And, you know, there, it was fun to see the deep, you know, and Greg Fiddleman is, is really extraordinary just on the orchestra alone. Um, the way he mic'd it, the amount of detail he went into, kind of what he had done before I heard the orchestra mix, even though he's not from the orchestra world, was like, you know, 90% there. Um, just on his by his own ears, he's he's and the and the amount of detail, like you know, he basically went through every, not every section, but I think he listened to every individual instrument, every mic. He listened to every mic before. That's some serious editing and yeah. mixing 130 live tracks. Yeah. yeah, and the detail, you know, and the and the commitment at which he works is is pretty stunning. It was great to get to know him and work. I mean, I worked really closely with him um, in the prep and. Yeah, so hats off. That's awesome. The work he did on the uh, the 3D IMAX through the Never movie and the Hardwired album, just phenomenal. Yeah. 
it'll be interesting to hear the difference and mix, you know, between through the never and S and M. Cause obviously with the orchestra and, you know, saying, you know, he wanted to make it sound a little bit more organic and natural, you know, and through the never sounds amazing, but it's very, very, you know, compressed. It sounds like it's, you know, mixed and mastered and, you know, again, sounds great, but it's going to be cool to compare the two. Yeah. I hope I get to hear the 5.1 mix. I don't have that at home. Yet. Yeah, but it would be maybe I'll go to someone's house and check it out because that that's a whole other mix. I mean, there's a lot of different kind of versions of this already of this concert, right. which is really cool. And they're all going to go in Lars's vault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Edwin, is there anything we haven't discussed or something that you want to share or something oh, that's never been made public that you want to touch on? Well, you caught a bunch of those, so you know, good for you. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh no, I mean I I think it was great talking to you guys and the super detailed and it makes me um so happy that people listen to this so carefully and or you know have such kind of awareness of the details that we all were sweating, you know, during this whole thing. It's really it's really uh it makes me happy. You'd be amazed how uh diehard Metallica fans dissect every millisecond of I'm getting that feeling every yes. experience we've been to it's it's amazing I, I will say I, I really appreciate how uh warm and and welcoming all the Metallica fans have been to me kind of stepping into their world and especially you know having to follow Michael Kamen as a conductor and you know mm-hmm. it's it's just I've appreciated how how kind and appreciative they've been uh it's I you know so much of my and maybe even like my Instagram has become very Metallica <laughs> oriented. <you know? laughs> so we've noticed. <laughs> yeah. And, um, no, the people following me is like, Oh, I got to give them more Metallica stuff. And I, it's, it's nice. And it's definitely changed my life in a certain sense. And I'm very proud to be a part of the, the family. And um, I almost feel I was telling my friends, you know, I do, you know, not unknown as a classical conductor, but you know, being exposed to this world is, which is so big and passionate is a different thing. So sometimes I feel I'm like the, the Hannah Montana of uh, <laughs> conductors. <laughs> like, like I have my, I have my like identity by day and then my rock identity by night, you know? Great um, reference. Well, yeah. Like you said, it's a family. The Metallica fans are tight and uh, in a way live for this stuff. We can't thank you enough for what you gave us as fans and experience a show gee a record a cd a dvd we're gonna we're gonna have it for life yeah and me too me too so much fun well there you have it folks the maestro of snm2 mr edwin outwater thank you so much sir total pleasure we appreciate it so much thanks edwin take care thank you all right take care see you guys Wow. What an amazing conversation. Yeah, man, that was, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say. For him to take uh, his time that he just took with us with two tribute band uh, half-assed musicians compared to his musicians, that speaks volumes. Pretty cool. I have nothing but respect for him and what he does. It was truly an amazing experience. Thank you, Edwin. Thank you, San Francisco Symphony, and pretty much giving us memories and live music that's going to last a lifetime. Oh, absolutely. You know, to be able to take a deep look at the foundation of what S&M 2 was built on, you know, it was truly an amazing thing. I can't wait to hear Halo 
Uh, I can't wait to hear the memory ending with the crowd. And boy, we talked about all lot torn a lot, but whew, it's going to be worth it, dude. Yeah, I think we all agreed that Outlaw is always been the best SNM Metallica song. Pretty interesting that it almost didn't make the cut. It was almost bleeding again. I, th- I think he made a good choice. Yes, Edwin definitely made the right choice. In the little bit of say that he did have with the set list, I'm very, very glad that he decided to go with Outlaw. Thank you, Edwin. Thank you, San Francisco Symphony. Thank you, SNM2, everyone involved. I really think our listeners are going to dig this one, man. As we're wrapping up season one, maybe we should release a trailer for season two. What do you think? I was just going to say, I think Edwin is a perfect way to wrap up season one. Boy, what an encore performance that is. And yeah, it's, it's the end of August. School's back in session or starting to go back into session. Dude, we started this back in April. Can you believe it's already gone that fast? Yeah, season one flew by just like that. And, you know, I said on multiple occasions that I didn't even think that we'd make it this far and that I was surprised that we made it this far. And now look at we've wrapped up with the biggest guests we've had to date. And, you know, we're going to get ready for another season, man. You and I have a lot of cool things planned for season two. I, th- I think I think you're right. We were just going to go into it next week, but let's throw a trailer together. Yeah, let's give them a little bit of a, a teaser. You know, we can't just release Edwin's episode and then just jump right into it. You know, we gotta we gotta ease our way into it. Trailer 2.0. The gears are already turning into my head. You guys are going to be truly amazed by what we have in store coming up in the <laughs> next season. Tune in, download, and share it. Trailer 2.0. We'll see you next week. Fucking thanks. Thanks.